There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. It is a universal truth that all religions, whether their adherents want to admit it or not, change and evolve over time and space. As a religion enters a new cultural sphere, it inevitably is going to adjust and change based on that meeting. Buddhism is of course no different, and is indeed a religion where this phenomenon is very clearly visible. Buddhism, for different reasons, has really had an ability to diversify and adapt existing religious and cultural features in different parts of the world into its own symbolic sphere. It won't be news to anyone that Buddhism in different parts of the world can look, well, very different. And in East Asia, where Buddhism has arguably been the strongest and most widespread across history, there are some really unique and fascinating features that are well, unique to that particular region and the Buddhism that flourished and developed there. And one of the most significant and influential schools of Buddhism across history and today from East Asia is the tradition known as Chan Buddhism, also known perhaps more widely by its Japanese name, Zen Buddhism. When perhaps most Westerners think about Buddhism, they imagine a religion primarily concerned with silent sitting meditation and perhaps with the famous koan riddles. All of these perceptions of Buddhism come from the influence of a single branch or school of Buddhism, Zen Buddhism. Indeed, the image most quote-unquote Westerners have of Buddhism is shaped perhaps by, primarily at least, by two things, Zen Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism. Not only are these two very different from each other, they are also only two schools within a religious tradition that is much more diverse and complex than that. So much has this particular kind of Buddhism entered Western consciousness that the word Zen itself has become a kind of go-to word to describe something or someone that is in a calm or meditative, content state. That isn't to say that it isn't an important part of Buddhism, which it absolutely is. 
Zen is and has been one of the most widespread, popular, and prominent schools of Buddhism in East Asia, in places like Japan, in Korea, where it is called Son, in Vietnam, where it is known as Tien, and in China, where it originated and where it is known as Chan. This word, Chan, is actually a Chinese version of the originally Sanskrit term Dhyana, which is usually translated as something like meditation. And this name, thus, gives us the first clue to the characteristics of this tradition. Just like many people might assume, it is a form of Buddhism very much focused on practice, and on meditation practice in particular. There were other prominent schools of Buddhism, including the popular Chinese Tiantai, that were much more scholastic in nature, focusing on translated Buddhist texts and commentaries and interpretations of those texts to reach a kind of correct doctrine. Chan appeared as a reaction to that, and with a much different focus on teacher-student transmission and actual experience and practice. Direct experience and practice taught by a teacher to a student in this kind of lineage of teachers. But we should probably back up a little bit first before we dive into Chan itself. I assume you know the basics of Buddhism, since we don't have time to go through that properly here. The religion originated in India with the figure Siddhartha Gautama, known as the Buddha, or the Enlightened One. He taught the Four Noble Truths, that life is suffering or dissatisfaction, uh, dukkha in, in Pali, that there is a reason for and solution to that suffering, and offered a technique of ending that suffering, a state or concept known as nirvana which according to many isn't actually a state at all, but anyways. This technique of ending dukkha involves the so-called Eightfold Path and adherence to the three jewels or three treasures of Buddhism, the Buddha as a kind of exemplar, the Dharma or the teachings of the Buddha, and the Sangha, the Buddhist community. For a really great introduction to Buddhism as a whole, check out my friend and fellow religious studies content creator Andrew Henry's amazing videos on the channel Religion for Breakfast, which are, again, simply fantastic. In any case, after the death of the Buddha, Buddhism spread far and wide and became very popular. First in India itself, of course, but before long it had spread to other parts of the world, including China, where it became a dominant religious tradition alongside Taoism and Confucianism. And as Buddhism spread to China and gradually adjusted and accommodated itself to that cultural climate, it came to develop some truly unique features so that Chinese or East Asian Buddhism very much has its own kind of flavor. First of all, the kind of Buddhism that came to China is the branch known as Mahayana, which means great vehicle. For much of history, this school has stood alongside Theravada as the two major branches of the religion with the possible third inclusion of Vajrayana Buddhism. As we talked about in our previous episode about the Buddhist scholar Nagarjuna, different regions have been, and still are, dominated by different branches. Theravada, which means something like the school of the elders, is the dominant form of Buddhism in places like Cambodia, Thailand, Myanmar, and Sri Lanka. Whereas Mahayana, the largest school or branch today, dominates in places like China, Japan, Vietnam, Nepal, and Malaysia. The history of Buddhism in China is a long one. Already during the Han Dynasty in the last centuries BC, Buddhist monks had made their way there, and in the first centuries AD or CE, Buddhism was already a significant presence. Buddhist personalities and texts would make their way across the Silk Road from India to the Far East, where the many sutras of the Buddha would gradually be translated into Chinese. 
As we saw, it was Mahayana Buddhism that became especially prominent here, and by the 6th to 7th centuries, they started developing homegrown schools and forms of Buddhism unique to China. Mostly, these were scholastic schools dedicated to the elucidation of Buddhist scriptures, such as the Tiantai school, known in Japan as Tendai, the Huayan or flower ornament, and the famous Qingtu or pure land Buddhism, which is still very strong today. And it was in this same environment that Chan developed, which we will get to soon. Buddhism in China and East Asia really is unique in many ways, even though it shares many core features with other forms of the religion. There developed new ideas and specific things were emphasized here, probably partly in response to the already existing local religions and culture. When we talk about Mahayana Buddhism, or East Asian Mahayana in particular, there are a few things that are central and which really characterize this kind of Buddhism. Primarily the Bodhisattva ideal and the teachings about Buddha nature. The ideal of the Bodhisattva is one of the main things that distinguishes Mahayana from Theravada. Indeed, while the goal for a Theravada Buddhist is essentially to become an Arhat, to reach nirvana and be liberated from samsara, the cycle of death and rebirth, Mahayana has another goal which is essentially focused on compassion. The highest aim is to become a bodhisattva. A bodhisattva is a person that has attained awakening but still decides to, so to say, stay in the world of change to help others reach awakening, with the ultimate goal of everyone eventually being liberated. There are many bodhisattvas in this system, and they often take on a role similar to deities in other religions. The goal here isn't to, quote-unquote, escape the world, but to live compassionately and virtuously in it, something that will also be very important in Chan Buddhism in particular. In fact, in a lot of Chinese Buddhism, the whole concept of nirvana is interpreted in a way that is surprising to many. There is, in fact, no nirvana, as understood as a particular state, event, or happening. Nirvana isn't some otherworldly place or state of experience, a liberation from this world. Instead, nirvana is all of this right now. Everything is nirvana all the time. This brings us to that second characteristic of Chinese Mahayana Buddhism, the idea of Buddha nature. At its core, this is essentially the idea that liberation is available to everyone at all times. It isn't just specific people who have access to it, those who have lived a certain collection of past lives and accumulated the karma required to reach it. It isn't just monks who spend their whole life meditating in a monastery. Everyone can reach awakening, and right now. This is because everything takes part in Buddha nature. Everyone is a potential Buddha, because the very nature of the Buddha and of liberation is present everywhere, including in ourselves. This doctrine, which is often known as Tathagatagarbha, has been interpreted differently by different schools of Buddhism, but the basic idea remains. And while the term I just used is Sanskrit, and precursors to the idea may have appeared in India, it is an idea that is strongly associated with Chinese and East Asian Buddhism in particular. But in general, the ideas of Buddha nature are strongly connected to the concept of emptiness, or shunyata, which we have explored deeply in a previous episode. Buddhism teaches that everything is non-permanent, that is, it's temporary. Everything is always changing. It also posits the idea of no self, that there is no inherent self or core to human beings, or ultimately to anything. The idea of the I or the self as a fixed independent reality is an illusion. 
The doctrine of emptiness associated primarily with the thinker Nagarjuna went even further by stating that everything is empty. There are no essences in the world at all. Now it should be remembered that emptiness does not mean nothingness. Instead, what emptiness teaches is that all things are interdependent on all other things. There is no independent reality or essence to anything because any quote-unquote thing we imagine is only a series of happenings related to other things. The necessary consequence of the fact that everything is empty is its backside, that everything is everything else. That any single thing is simultaneously all of reality, because it partakes of an infinitely interconnected web of events. In other words, it's a kind of non-dualism, but one that neglects any idea of a absolute reality as such, such as the Brahman of Hinduism. It is very, even Nagarjuna in his writings, is, are, they are very careful not to posit that there is this ultimate reality similar to, 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 the, to the Brahman or the Atman in Hinduism. There is no ultimate reality. Nothing has independent or, or fixed existence as such. Everything is empty. But since everything is connected and everything is interdependent on everything else, there is a kind of non-duality inherent in that idea too. When we look at a tree, there is no tree there, as in a specific thing called a tree. That's only a mental construction. On the other hand, the positive outcome of that is that when we look at a tree, we're looking at something that is infinitely connected to everything else. That tree would not be what it is without the soil from which it grows, without the sun that gives it light and enables it to grow, without the planet's specific distance from the sun that gives it the, just the right heat to be able to grow, um, the sun and its particular place in the galaxy, and literally everything else which together make that tree what it is, and without which it would be nothing. In other words, when we look at the tree, we are looking simultaneously at emptiness, at no thing at all, and we are looking at a particular manifestation and showing of the entirety of reality appearing at that specific moment as something we call a tree. In any case, because everything is interconnected in this way, every individual quote-unquote thing being part of everything else, this has significant consequences. Because, after all, the Buddha lived at one point, and since the Buddha lived and achieved liberation, everything is the Buddha, and everything is liberation. Because everything is interconnected and everything contains everything else, that means that everything contains nirvana and Buddha. In other words, the Buddha nature. This is why liberation is available to anyone. It's right here all the time. Not in some distant place or other world, but right here and now. This idea of Buddha nature as a common feature of all reality is a central aspect of Chinese Buddhism and shows up in slightly different ways in all the schools of Buddhism that would emerge here. Now, the school that we know as Chan developed in this very fruitful period of religious and philosophical activity that we have discussed around the 6th to 9th centuries, and in many ways it's a kind of response to the approaches of the other schools. There are two ways in which we can approach the history and, and origins, in particular, of Chan Buddhism. The scholarly, historically critical one, and the traditional internal one. Because indeed, the way that the history of Chan Buddhism is told within the tradition itself contains many aspects that we would consider um, legendary, or at least semi-legendary, and stories and aspects that is, or that are very hard to, to verify with you know the historical uh, critical method that we can be sure are, are true and not myths, for example. According to this classical account, there is a direct line of Chan patriarchs that stretches back all the way to the Buddha himself. 
So the Chan Buddhism puts a huge emphasis on, on lineage and teacher-student relationship, and they believe that this lineage of teachers um, goes back all the way to the Buddha. Much of this is hard to verify scientifically, though, and many scholars today instead hold the view that Chan Buddhism actually emerged in a more eclectic way, different meditation masters in different parts of China with similar outlooks um, around the 6th, 7th century that sort of grew and eventually sort of coalesced into, into a unified school in a certain sense. And these stories about the patriarchs are probably projections later on to, to sort of unify and, and create a more coherent story of the origins of the tradition. Nonetheless, these are the two kind of different versions of, of the story. But if we explore the traditional account in particular, while of course keeping in mind the some of the questionable historicity, we find some really fascinating stories and, and characters that are at the core of the history and origins of Chan Buddhism. Chan traces its lineage to the Buddha himself, of course, but in particular to one of his prominent followers, Mahakashyapa. He was an important figure in the earliest Buddhist community, and is often seen as the first Chan or Zen master. An often told story really encapsulates this role of his and some of the basics of Chan teachings. In this story, the Buddha gathers his followers to hold a talk or a speech. But the eager students are surprised when the Buddha doesn't say anything at all. Instead, just sitting there in complete silence, holding up a flower in his hand. Everyone is perplexed and tries to understand what's going on. Is the Buddha sick? Is this a kind of trick of some sort? Everyone, that is, except Mahakashyapa. Instead, when he sees the Buddha holding up the flower in silence, he breaks into a smile. The Buddha then praises him, saying that he is the only one that has truly understood his teachings. This really says something about Chan and its characteristic teachings. In contrast to other schools, it doesn't place its emphasis on words or texts or philosophizing, but on a kind of wordless wisdom achieved through direct experience, meditation and insight transmitted directly from a teacher to a student rather than from texts or teaching through words. The story of the flower sermon, as it has become known, thus serves as a kind of archetype for Chan teachings in a way, and claims Mahakashapa as its original representative. But Chan, as such, doesn't truly begin until much later, from around the 6th century and in China. Its development is associated with a few patriarchs, often six in particular, founding figures that made the school what it is. The first of these is often said to be the figure Bodhidharma, followed by Dazo Huike, Yanqi Sengchan, Dai Daoqin, Daman Hongren, and Daijian Huineng. It might be worthwhile to explore that first patriarch, Bodhidharma, a bit further, since he is so foundational and, frankly, just really fascinating. Bodhidharma is actually a kind of semi-legendary figure. It isn't entirely certain that he was a historical person, and if he was, the stories about him are dubious in terms of historicity. In any case, it is thought that he lived in the 5th or 6th century and came from the West, either from India or maybe Central Asia. After training as a Buddhist monk, he was tasked to go to China and spread the tradition there. Representing a direct lineage, the 28th person in a lineage, going back to the Buddha himself, he would establish what would become known as Chan Buddhism in China. In one story, he is taken to Emperor Wu of the Liang dynasty, who asks him what is the true meaning of Buddhism. Bodhidharma says something to the effect that 
Buddhism has nothing to do with true and false. The emperor is taken aback by this and asks what is the purpose or merit then for his sponsoring the building of temples, translations of scriptures and other projects. Bodhidharma simply replies that it has no merit at all, and the emperor is shocked. Having upset the emperor, the patriarch then leaves, probably smart, and it is said that he went to Mount Song, where he would sit in meditation facing a wall for nine years. Bodhidharma would then serve as the archetype and key figure in the emergence of Chan, with its focus on meditation in particular. There are many stories, sayings, and texts attributed to him, but it's hard to say how much is accurate. Many modern scholars argue, however, that a work entitled something like Two Entrances and Four Practices can probably be attributed at least partly to the man himself, if he was a historical person. In this text, we find the characteristic teachings of Bodhidharma, much of which would become important to Chan as a whole. As the title suggests, there are two entrances to the Buddhist path, principle and practice. Principle is simply that one realizes reality for what it is, the emptiness of all things, to see past the illusions of our regular mind. Bodhidharma says himself, quote, To enter by principle means to realize the essence through instruction and to believe that all living things share the same true nature, which isn't apparent because it's shrouded by sensation and delusion. The second entrance of practice involves four practices, as the title of the treatise also suggests. While there can be some variants in terms of how these are translated, they are generally accepting apparent injustice, corresponding with or kind of accepting present conditions, seeking nothing, including not seeking awakening or liberation, and expressing the Dharma for the benefit of others. These teachings, as well as those that his successors would add and contribute to it, are some of the core features of Chan Buddhism. So what is it that makes Chan or Zen Buddhism what it is? What is unique about it among other Buddhist schools, even in China? We have already answered some of those questions, and it's not an easy subject to tackle. But the basic characteristics of Chan Buddhism is first and foremost this focus on a lineage of masters. Some scholars have argued that this is a direct result of the very strong ancestor cult in Chinese culture, which was then adapted in this way to the Buddhist tradition. Whatever the case, this idea of lineage is highly emphasized, as well as the teacher-student relationship in general. Chan is a kind of response to these scholastic schools of Buddhism that dominated China at the time, the schools that focused on interpreting texts from India. In Chan, awakening or wisdom is not reached through words or teachings as such, but through wordless experience and virtuosity taught directly by a teacher. The last of the Chan patriarchs, Huineng, is thought to have said that, quote, A finger points at the moon, but the moon is not at the tip of the finger. Words point at the truth, but the truth is not in words. The goal is not to be liberated, to enter some otherworldly states, or to be concerned with rituals or word-related word teachings or such things. Instead, the goal of Chan practice and liberation is something to be lived, a way of being in the world and in relationship to other people and beings. The scholar Peter D. Hershock says, quote, Practicing Chan is not a spiritual discipline that requires us to retreat into a cave or a remote forest. It is a way of being present that can, and finally must, be undertaken in the midst of everyday circumstances. It is not an exercise of single-pointed concentration, but of illuminating and bringing to full expression the enlightening character and non-duality of all things. When people imagine Chan or Zen, 
they tend to imagine a monk sitting in meditation for a long period of time. Indeed, as we said in the beginning, this is often the image of Buddhism in general that many people have. And meditation is indeed very important to Chan. The word Chan, after all, comes from the Sanskrit dhyana, meaning meditation. And that is often mentioned as one of the things that characterize it the most, Chan's focus on meditation. The emergence of the tradition of Chan can be said to have been a loosely connected group of meditation masters, as we saw with Bodhidharma, for example. Now, meditation is of course present in basically all Buddhist schools, at least in some way. It was, after all, through meditation under the Bodhi tree that the Buddha himself reached nirvana. But Buddhist meditation can take many different forms, not all of which is simply sitting still and focusing on your breathing or emptying your mind, for example. A lot of Buddhist meditation is a lot more involved and complex than that, involving chanting sutras or visualization and other techniques. But in Chan or Zen, there is a particular focus on that kind of meditation that we are most familiar with. What is called in the tradition, Chuo Chan, or in Chinese, Zazen, which translates as sitting meditation. This is a kind of meditation where you do precisely what it sounds like, simply sitting, often with open eyes facing a wall or sometimes with eyes closed. Sometimes specific things are focused on to help concentration, such as the breath, but the basic idea is simply to sit. It involves specific postures, such as the lotus position, and the image of a Zen monk meditating is perhaps one of the most iconic images associated with Buddhism. This kind of meditation existed in other schools as well, but often this form of meditation was simply an initial technique to prepare or calm the mind for the actual meditations that followed, which would often be a lot more involved. In Chan, instead, this particular form is emphasized as a primary practice. But why? How come this practice is so important to Chan in particular? If you remember what I mentioned earlier, East Asian Buddhism, and therefore Chan, has some characteristic teachings, including very significantly that of Buddha nature. Everything has Buddha nature and enlightenment as its own very nature. Suffering and nirvana are one and the same thing, and everything is Buddha nature. Enlightenment is right there in front of us the whole time. It's not some sort of gradual journey where we leave everything behind and eventually reach this high state. It's eternally present the whole time as our very nature. Everything that keeps us from being awakened are all things that we have added to our nature. All the things we misunderstand about ourselves that get in the way of realizing the fact that our self is illusory and that all things are empty. As such, to reach enlightenment, all we need to do is let go of those false constructs we have added to ourselves and to simply recognize what was there all along, what was truly there, which is identical to nirvana. When we sit in meditation, in zazen, we simply allow ourselves to be, to where the analytic mind is silenced and we can hopefully fall into an unobstructed vision of ourselves, and there is awakening. When sitting in meditation, we aren't supposed to focus on anything at all in particular. We aren't doing anything at all, not even meditating. It's actually a kind of non-meditation. The whole purpose of sitting in meditation is to sit in meditation. There is no goal or ultimate purpose other than the very action itself, sitting. If we do that properly, we can fall into an unobstructed way of being where all the constructs about who we are and what all of this is falls away and we awaken to the nirvana that was there all along. According to tradition, someone once asked the first Chan patriarch, Bodhidharma, where is the place of enlightenment? To which he replied, quote, 
The place you are walking on is the place of enlightenment. The place you are lying on is the place of enlightenment. The place you are sitting is the place of enlightenment. The place you are standing is the place of enlightenment. Wherever you pick up your feet or put them down, that is the place of enlightenment. Indeed, the common understanding of nirvana that most people would have if you ask a random person on the street is actually false according to this school. Usually, when we ask someone what nirvana is, they will say that nirvana is the ending of suffering, or the, the, uh, somehow that the person has reached a state where he transcends suffering somehow. But this is actually not true, at least according to this interpretation. Even after reaching nirvana, we still experience the world and everything in it just as it is, including suffering. We don't stop hurting when someone punches us in the face. We don't stop feeling sad when a family member or a friend passes away and we feel that terrible sense of loss. That's all still experienced. Instead, nirvana is simply the disappearance of any resistance to suffering, any resistance to pain. It is, after all, often uh, resistance to suffering that is the most painful. If we fully accept a situation that we are in... Um, or any suffering or pain that we are feeling, it becomes at least less difficult to go through. In other words, it is, to some degree, our state of mind that determines our experience. This is a core teaching of Chan Buddhism, that it is our state of mind that determines our, well, how we experience the world, including how we experience suffering, or in this case, not experience suffering, because we don't um, attach any will to ending suffering, for example. We just let things be as they are, and when we do that, we stop suffering, even from things like pain. I remember one time I was walking home in the middle of winter at night with two large bags in my hands. Uh, I had quite a long way to go before I came home, uh, and it was really freezing outside. I could already tell as I was walking that my hands were starting to hurt from the, from the, from the cold. It was terrible. I was having a, just a, an awful time. But suddenly I, I realized, you know, it's going to take me a while to get home. There's nothing I can do about this. I'm going to be cold. It's going to hurt. And I simply accepted the fact that my hands are going to hurt a lot in, in the coming 15 minutes. Once I accepted that, while the pain didn't necessarily go away, I completely stopped suffering from that pain to some degree. It wasn't a problem for me anymore because I'd completely accepted that it, things were going to hurt. And when I accepted that, it was a lot more bearable. I don't mean to say that I've reached nirvana, of course, but to point out that it is often resistance to suffering or being attached to a certain outcome that creates suffering. And to be rid of all such resistance and attachments is something close to what is meant by nirvana here. It is from this that another characteristic teaching in Chan comes, the idea of sudden awakening. Rather than, like in most other schools of Buddhism, the road to enlightenment is a gradual journey where we let go of attachments and illusions until we find awakening, in Chan, awakening happens all at once and suddenly. Because nirvana is right here all the time, when we awaken to it, we do it suddenly. That isn't to say, of course, that Chan doesn't involve practice or isn't a difficult path to reaching that state, but the event of awakening itself is looked at very differently. Quote, if we find ourselves in the position of wanting liberation or awakening, we are already stuck in delusion. If awakening lies somewhere over the horizon of our present situation, in some other time or some other place, then it is nothing more than a figment of one's imagination. 
This was actually a big debate in early Chan Buddhism, with two schools, the southern and northern schools, representing different perspectives. One favoring sudden awakening, the other gradual awakening. Eventually, the so-called southern school, represented by the last of the six patriarchs, Hui Neng, became the paradigm and sudden enlightenment would characterize most of Chan from then on. So meditation, or sitting meditation, is one of the core practices that characterize Chan Buddhism. Another core concept associated with the tradition, which is also partly connected to the doctrine of sudden enlightenment, is the employment of gong-an, or koans in Japanese. These are literally public cases, often misunderstood as riddles. But really, they are stories or short sentences, sometimes stories of the Chan patriarchs or other such things, that have the aim of rattling the mind. The koans are to be meditated on and are often very confusing or strange, without any seemingly clear answer. They always have an answer, though, and a prominent tradition in Chan, especially in the Linji and Rinzai school, is that students are given a koan and are tasked with presenting an answer to their master, a process that can take a long time and many attempts before being completed. Some of these koans have become famous even outside a Buddhist framework, such as the question, what is the sound of one hand clapping? Or when Linji, one of the great masters of Chan Buddhism, is thought to have said, if you see the Buddha on the road, kill him. A koan, in the best cases, can break the mind, so to say. It can jolt the person out of his regular way of looking at things and lead to a sudden awakening. There are stories of the patriarchs having such experiences, um, being told something, just someone telling, saying a sentence, and the person just reaching enlightenment right away from hearing that sentence. This is a common kind of thing in Chan or Zen Buddhism. So these are some of the key features of Chan or Zen Buddhism in particular. But this can sometimes also be misleading. It is true that meditation, both sitting meditation and koan meditation, is essential practice. But as we said earlier, the ultimate goal in Mahayana in general is not to become liberated and end the cycle of rebirths. Remember, nirvana and suffering are one and the same thing. Sitting meditation is great and can be very helpful, but according to many Chan Buddhists, true practice is a kind of non-practice. It is to cultivate a mind that lives virtuously in the world, being able to meet basically any situation with spontaneous genius. Like a master musician who has cultivated his playing to such a level that he never has to think about what he's playing, he simply does it effortlessly, the true Chan master is a person who confronts all of life in this way, being able to respond appropriately to any situation without obstruction and live an awakened life in relationship to other people. In a way, everything is thus meditation. In Chan, there is the idea that even the most mundane tasks are also meditation when approached correctly something that resembles the modern idea of mindfulness. There is a Zen saying that basically goes, when you're walking, walk, when you're eating, eat. In other words, every situation, however ordinary and mundane it may be, is to be approached with total presence and care, ideally with as little obstruction and effort as possible. This is why you will see Zen monks frequently doing things like raking leaves or washing the dishes, even in washing your dirty plate, awakening or nirvana is present and is a perfect opportunity for meditation. Ideally, every moment of life is a kind of meditation. Now, many of these ideas, especially these latter ones, might remind you of other Chinese traditions such as Taoism. And this is a very significant point. Buddhism, of course, adapted and changed depending on the environment into which it spread, 
and this was equally true in China. Local traditions like Taoism and Confucianism undeniably had an effect on East Asian forms of Buddhism. And when it comes to Chan, it is often said that this is the school where we can most clearly see influences from Taoism in particular. Many of the characteristic features of Chan, such as the focus on unobstructed mind and virtuous spontaneity in life, have clear parallels in Taoism and in the classic literature of that tradition, such as in the Tao Te Ching or the Zhuangzi. Not just these techniques either, but also some meditation techniques in general, as well as the fact that the idea of Buddha nature is in some ways pretty similar to the idea of the Tao. I have even encountered people who claim that the Chan Buddhists are the true heirs or successors to the early so-called philosophical Taoists like Lao Tzu and Zhuangzi, which is often placed in, you know, in contrast to later religious Taoism. Now, I completely disagree with these categories as a whole, but it really shows you how much Chan Buddhism in particular seems to have in common or have, have sort of taken inspiration perhaps from the early Taoist literature. It's a fascinating topic, but it shouldn't be overemphasized too much either. Chan differs in significant ways too, and the relationship between the two traditions were not always on friendly terms, with many episodes of oppression of Buddhists and vice versa. The patriarchs and early representatives of Chan in China shaped much of the tradition of course, and we have discussed some of those key features, but the school also continued to evolve and develop over time. Even within Chan, different sub-schools emerged that differed on certain fronts, not to mention the differences between geographical divisions such as Zen, Son, and Tian. There were various sub-schools of Chan that emerged in the Middle Ages, not all of which we have time to dive into here. There is often talk about the Five Houses of Chan, five recognized Chan lineages that emerged during the Song Dynasty, often considered the Golden Age of Chan Buddhism. Essentially, only two of these schools have survived to any significant degree, the Kaodong school and the Linji school. To this day, Chan Buddhism is generally divided into these two major schools or branches. So what are the differences? Well, at its core, it's simply a question of lineage. But they've also emphasized different things historically. There is no way of talking about this without just completely oversimplifying everything. But one thing that is often said is that the Kaodong school focuses more on sitting meditation and silent illumination. This school is thought to have been founded by the figures Dongshang Liangji and Kaoshang Benji, and the name Kaodong being a kind of combination of their names. This is at least one theory. There is a major focus in this school on those Zazen techniques that we mentioned earlier. The kinds of meditation that are non-meditation, where the goal is simply to sit. The other, Linji school, is named after Linji Yichuan, who is considered the defining figure in that lineage. He and his successors became famous, among other things, for sometimes using violence in their teaching techniques. A master could actually strike a student to jolt him out of his regular state of mind and help them reach enlightenment. It's also generally said that this school is more focused on the koans, meditating on these stories or these koans, and the more ritualized aspects of the students you know, discussing, contemplating, and giving answers to koans to their master. And the school, sometimes it is said, has less so focus on silent meditation like the Kaodong school. But again, these are all huge generalizations. The Linji school has been the dominant for most of history. These schools are perhaps better known in the West, however, by their Japanese names or equivalents. As Chan Buddhism eventually spread to Japan and became known as Zen, these different schools also came to have a presence there, 
And in Japan, the Linji school became known as Rinzai, or Rinzai Zen, whereas the Kaodong school became known as Soto Zen. The man responsible for bringing Soto Zen to Japan is perhaps the most famous Zen Buddhist in history, Dogen Zenji. Dogen was originally from Japan and earlier in his life was an ordained monk in the scholastic Tiantai school, known in Japan as Tendai. But he became dissatisfied with their teachings and eventually traveled to China where he studied Chan, specifically the Kaodong school. Upon returning to Japan a few years later, he brought this school with him and established it in his native country, where it became known as Soto. In his teachings and extensive writings, which included the masterwork Shobo Genzo, Treasury on the True Dharma Eye, he put a major emphasis on Zazen, sitting meditation, specifically in the form often called Shikantaza in Japanese, which translates as something like nothing but sitting. We talked about this concept earlier as common to all of Zen, but Dogen seems to put an even bigger emphasis on it. The idea is that Zazen meditation, as the core practice of Zen and technique for liberation, is simply about sitting. It is that non-meditation that has no specific purpose other than to simply be, and with no specific technique. This is the famous idea associated with Dogen, that the practice is the goal. It is only through this kind of non-meditation that we can get an unobstructed experience of our true nature and the nature of all things. That nature which is, after all, identical to nirvana. Dogen and his teachings have characterized Zen, particularly Soto Zen, in Japan for the rest of history, and a lot of our ideas about Zen here in the West are also strongly colored by the influence of Dogen in particular. Similar to China, the Soto and Rinzai schools have been the dominant forms of Zen Buddhism in Japan, but these in themselves are of course divided into their own branches and sub-branches and so on. In many ways, the Zen tradition of Japan differs from Chan in China, even though they have a common origin. Indeed, the different geographical schools, Chan in China, Zen in Japan, Son in Korea, and Tian in Vietnam, are often considered separate traditions of their own, since they have often developed independently of each other across history and been colored by local traditions and contexts. We don't have time to go through all these differences and nuances here, of course, but it's an interesting point to consider. If you visit a Japanese Zen center in Europe or North America, uh, compared to a Chinese Chan center, uh, there can be significant differences between the two today. One such difference that is often brought up between you know, Chinese Chan and Japanese Zen is that Zen Buddhists in Japan have, at least since the Meiji uh, Restoration or, or uh, revolution in the 19th century. Uh, Zen monks uh, are allowed to marry, so they will often have families and children while also being Zen monks, whereas in China and in, in the Chan tradition, so to say, uh, the monks still generally take a vow of celibacy. But Zen hasn't just spread to other parts of East Asia, but also to the West, especially in the last century. Indeed, Zen is one of the most famous and prominent forms of Buddhism that we find in a Western context. It seems to really appeal to a European and American audience, perhaps partly due to its somewhat iconoclastic nature. Compared to other schools of Buddhism, it isn't as ritualistic or focused on sacred scriptures, thus appearing to be less quote-unquote religious according to Western conceptions. That is my theory, at least. Zen is more egalitarian, too. It doesn't require you to become a monk or study scriptures deeply to understand the doctrines of Buddhism. 
It simply tells us to sit and be what we are, something that is available to everyone, and which doesn't sound all that difficult. Although, as many of you probably know, just simply sitting is easier said than done. Many of the famous Buddhist teachers who have had a significant presence in the West come from the Chan tradition in particular. For example, the popular teacher Thich Nhat Hanh, who passed away last year, belonged to the Vietnamese Tian school. In conclusion, Chan Buddhism has been one of the dominant and most influential schools of Buddhism in East Asia, and lately also across the whole world. Its teachings appeared partly as a kind of response to the scholasticism of its fellow Chinese schools and instead emphasized teacher-student transmission, wordless teachings, direct experience, and sitting silent meditation. It teaches the profound idea that nirvana is available to anyone at any time, since the Buddha nature is our own very reality and can be awakened to by simply looking past all the constructions of our mind to where our unobstructed view of our true nature leads to a sudden awakening to nirvana. A nirvana that is not some otherworldly state, but simply a way of being in this world, a way of confronting the happenings of life, suffering and all, with virtuosity and compassion for all fellow beings. Some of its characteristic features, such as zazen, meditation, and koans, have become famous around the world outside of Buddhism and can even provide spiritual meaning to the secular modern person. Certainly then, Chan, or Zen, is a significant piece of the puzzle when we try to understand the vast and significant tradition that is Buddhism. And I'll see you next time. Uh.